This is the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. Design thinking is one of the most often repeated and misunderstood topics in education, especially in K-12 schools. Teachers are typically introduced to the concept in professional development sessions. Session facilitators might simply show the five to six part design thinking cycle diagram, a spiraling process of moving through each stage until satisfactory results are achieved. If you haven't seen this diagram, it shows a series of ellipses or hexagons representing each stage. It has many variations, but usually the process is this. Empathize, define, ideate, prototype, test, and implement. Unfortunately, in many cases, this might be as deep as the professional development facilitator goes. Enterprising teachers will take this concept and apply it to either their curriculum or practice, or both. The design thinking philosophy can be applied successfully in any lesson or unit, and not solely to design an engineering curriculum. Science teachers will quickly draw the comparison between design thinking and the scientific method. Likewise, language arts, composition, and creative writing teachers will see direct parallels to how they lead their students through the writing process. Design thinking was first conceived in the 1950s and 60s, but it wasn't until the early 2000s that it began to infiltrate areas outside of design and engineering. Organizations like IDEO and Stanford's D-School introduced design thinking to the world, and K-12 schools started to take notice in the early 2010s. Perhaps not coincidentally, at the same time as interest in design thinking increased in K-12 schools, the maker movement in schools gained momentum. Our guest today is Annette Diefenthaler. Annette is a portfolio director at IDEO, where she works to bring human-centered design to systemic challenges in learning and education. She's also the co-author of IDEO's Design Thinking Toolkit for Educators. Okay, Annette, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much. I'm thrilled to talk to you. So, you know, reading your bio, you grew up in Germany and have a master's degree from the Köln International School of Design. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about growing up in Germany and just kind of your design education there. Yeah, so um, I think growing up in Germany, um, I come from a small town in southern Germany. I grew up. Uh, with a strong connection to the mountains, to nature. I read a lot when I was growing up. Um, I enjoyed uh, climbing furniture and building things pretty early on. Um, And I actually didn't start any team sports or activities until I was a teenager, which I think might be a little bit Mm -hmm. unusual. Um, But what that provided for me was a lot of time to just explore and play and do things um, with my brother and my neighbor's kids. And um, I think that kind of shaped my um, my sense of loving exploration, loving travel, uh, just loving to do things with whatever is around me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, in um, coming to design actually was a bit of a surprise. I didn't necessarily have that as a childhood dream because I didn't even know that existed as an opportunity. Um, but after I graduated, mm-hmm. I went to 
um, the office that had a lot of yellow binders that were describing careers. This was pre-internet, <laughs> so you didn't search on the internet, but you actually went to a place where you could look at career paths in yellow binders, and one of those binders said design. Um, and I was really intrigued by that and looked at that and thought, oh, wow, that sounds like a better version of interior architecture, which is what I had been looking at previously, mm -hmm. and so I got really interested in the journey. Um, yeah, and... Um, in thinking about design education in Germany and how that might be different from other places, I think what's really quite interesting is that design education in Germany is very much rooted in this evolution from arts and crafts. Uh, there's a really strong connection to craftsmanship, mm -hmm. to making things. And I, in fact, am a trained carpenter. So I worked as a carpenter on construction sites before I went into design education because that was a requirement to get in. Right? I, I needed that kind of oh, education, wow. right? Um, now, there's this other tendency of looking at design that has really shaped design education in schools in Germany, which is a sense of societal responsibility. That very much was started mm -hmm. by um, a school that no longer exists. Um, it was in Ulm in southern Germany. Um, it, it was founded in post-Third Reich Germany and very much contemplated what's the societal responsibility of designers? What can design do in the world that goes beyond just giving shape and form to things? Um, and so if you put those two together, that very much, um, I think, describes my own journey through design school um, and how I sought out the places that I went to For my education, um, KISD is Köln International School of Design. That's the school I got my degree from. And um, they offer a really progressive approach to education. There's 12 design-related subjects you take, but that includes design history and uh, conceptual approaches to it and uh, design management and service design, but also as there's still a workshop, mm -hmm. right? You make things. And so I think that it shaped... Um, in me, an understanding of design being something that is very much rooted in what we often refer to as that tangible, the making things, the getting mm -hmm. real. And again, having worked on construction sites, you really understand to value what it means because you, you cannot talk um, a piece of wood into being longer. If you've cut it too short, that's just what it is. right? So there's kind of a realness mm -hmm. to that that I really value. Uh, but I also think that there are much bigger aspirations that we can have and should have as designers and really contemplating how making things shapes our environment and how that shapes our experience and how that shapes our society and how we live together and interact and grow together um, and experience our lives. And so um, I think that that is very much the approach that has brought me to this place and the work that I do today. Sure. I mean, I think that, it, I mean, what you're describing sounds so great to me because I mean, it sounds like decades before this is really being talked about in the United States, there's a social entrepreneurship, a social consciousness aspect of your education, even almost a prerequisite to it that um, really just kind of contextualizes everything in a different way than just um, working on purely conceptual fine art or on design that's really theoretical without having a practical application. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things, so you, you're a por portfolio director at IDEO, and You know, IDEO is well, no, well known in design and innovation circles, but I was just wondering for our audience if you could kind of describe what IDEO is and what you guys yes. do. Um, I'm glad you asked um, because I have encountered many people, especially in my work in education, that have no idea what IDEO is, and I find that really refreshing. Um, 
It's mm -hmm. an, a global design firm, and we've been around for more than 40 years at this point. And um, IDEO really works across uh, pretty much any sector and industry that you can imagine. I'm pretty sure that most listeners of this podcast have at some point either held or interacted with a tool, a service, a, a something that IDEO has designed. <laughs> we have a pretty strong history. Mm -hmm. um, the roots of IDEO are really in product design, kind of like old day Silicon Valley product design. Um, IDEO is known for the design of the first commercial Apple mouse. <laughs> um, that now feels oh, really wow. ancient, <laughs> but that is one of the things mm -hmm. that engineers figured out. Um, and then over the years, we have started to apply a design-driven approach to creating lots of different things, to creating services, to creating experiences. Um, and increasingly, though, so to uh, thinking about how do we design systems and think about all the many elements that make up a system um, and how does that then mm -hmm. create a human experience, right? And that kind of connects back to the societal element of what design can do in the world. Mm -hmm. So given IDEO's history and roots designing industrial products and now moving into designing services and systems and systems thinking, how did IDEO break into or start working in the K-12 space? Yeah. A great question, and it doesn't seem so obvious, right? Um, IDEO is a very people driven organization, and things happen at IDEO because people are curious about them and believe in them. And um, many people who have kind of shaped the evolution of the organization have asked that question what else can design do, right? Where else is it needed? Mm -hmm. um, and one of those people is Sandy Spiker. She has recently actually become IDEO CEO. In her previous journey, mm -hmm. she came to IDEO both as a designer, she's a communications designer, a graphic designer, and she's also an educator. And so she started asking, how can we bring the power of design to education, right? Her, her personal story was very much connected to that. She actually taught a graphic design class uh, the day uh, the, the beginning of the Iraq war was announced. And she's talking about how she was in a classroom and how that really made her ask what really is the responsibility that we have here and how do education and design intersect, right? And so from those early days, um, she very much pioneered that approach of bringing design and design thinking to education. Now, if you think about it, um, the thing is that education has a fair share of challenges that need creative solutions. I think um, many, pretty much anyone in education would agree on that, right? Education is not exactly mm -hmm. what we wish for it to be. Um, and design and design thinking, at their very core, um, what that is is a creative approach to problem solving, right? So applying a creative approach to problem solving to some of the most pressing challenges in education just makes a lot of sense, right? And um, so bringing that together, um, IDEA really started to collaborate with organizations, with individuals, building partnerships in the K-12 space, um, as well as across the entire education spectrum, right? Our work extends into higher mm -hmm. education, early education, reskilling, professional development, um, really the entire life cycle of a learner. Um, and so over the past decade or so, uh, we have built this portfolio of work um, in demonstrating what design can do when you apply it mm -hmm. to those complex challenges in education and also what happens when you teach it to 
educators enable them to think of themselves as designers and when you bring it into the classroom. So all of those different aspects of it. Interesting. So to that end, you know, you're co-author of IDEO's Design Thinking Toolkit for Educators. What was the goal and kind of the impetus of this work? And, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the, the goal of this toolkit um, was and is up to this day very much to help educators realize that they have creative potential, right? To really help educators mm -hmm. see that they have power and agency to create change in schools and school communities. Um, and what we were very deliberate about was um, that we decided not to create a toolkit for teaching design thinking to kids. The thing is that that is mm -hmm. kind of the first um, reaction that we often get when educators hear of design thinking. They're like, great, I'm going to teach that to my kids, right? And that's awesome. And mm -hmm. um, yes, it is super important for kids to develop creative skills. And we really want them to be equipped with all of that. But what's even more important, especially in this moment, is that we want to see change in schools, right? We want to bring back the joy in learning. We want to really prepare students for the future that they're walking towards. Um, and so what the most important thing is there, we believe, is to invest and trust educators, like really invest in building their capacity. Um, because one thing that we often say here is educators are the innovators that education has been waiting for, right? They're already there. They're mm -hmm. in every single school. They're in all those classrooms. They just don't always know how to approach design systematically, how to really mm -hmm. think about that in a way where they can accomplish what they set out to do. Um, and so the way how the Design Thinking Toolkit was created in the first place and what I think it really also has accomplished is that it has brought that mindset to educators where they have that confidence to say, cool, I can create. I do this every single day for my classroom, but I can also think about that mm -hmm. together with my community and I can make change. And uh, that's just incredibly exciting to see. Yeah, I, I, I'll, a lot of times with the teachers that I work with, the teachers that I coach, they have they get design thinking as like a concept, but they have a really hard time with the practical design doing. Um, some what are the some of the practical ways you coach educators to use design thinking in their practice? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, it's one of the really core elements of helping educators see themselves as designers is first to help them see that. Uh, design and design thinking isn't a step-by-step -step process that you just go through and then there's magic at the end. That's not how it works, right? Um, and not that anyone would really say that, but I often experience in the frustration that people voice that they're kind of like, but I went through all the steps and I'm still coming up with the same ideas, right? Or I'm just not really getting mm -hmm. further. The thing is this, design thinking is a methodology and is a mindset, right? It is a combination of those two things. And really adopting both of those and doing them well is a craft and that takes a lot of practice, right? It just takes mm -hmm. practice to repeat that. It's kind of like learning a musical instrument or so, right? Where you, you can try it out and you kind of get a sense of how that works, but you need to do it over and over and over again to really get good at it and understand what high quality means, right? And how you get that absolutely beautiful song out of the instrument um, in that analogy. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, 
one thing that I often say is that for educators, um, design thinking is common sense, right? Because mm -hmm. people go into that profession because they love working with students, because they are human-centered, right? And design thinking mm -hmm. is human-centered practice. So that's already there. Um, they're also very creative, right? They build things for the classroom every time, every day. They build lesson plans, they decorate their walls, they figure out what field trips they're going to go on. Um, they construct learning, right? There's a lot of um, creation that is just part of being an educator, right? Um, and they also often prototype things. They try things out, right? Um, so it, that common sense of like, yeah, that resonates. That's not completely and entirely different from what I already do is there. Um, but common practice means that you need to understand what it means to really get good at it and to uphold high standards and and to do this work very well. And that isn't super easy to do. So um, I think that uh, just a couple things that can be really powerful for educators is first and foremost, looking for other educators that have used design thinking in their classrooms. The exciting thing is mm -hmm. there is a huge community out there that is using it all the time. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of these educators meet on and through Twitter. That's a really powerful way of looking for it. So simply looking for a design thinking or a DT for ed, um, I think is a common handle um, or DTK12 is a common handle. Just looking for those handles on Twitter and connecting with people uh, can be a really great starting point. People are super excited to connect and share what they're doing. Um, and they are the best resource. Um, and also they can understand kind of the contextual uh, constraints or so that educators are designing for. Um, I think also just kind of having examples from that community can be powerful. Um, mm -hmm. I also... I asked my colleague, um, Adaha Mangus and Alicia English, they both are part of the Teachers Guild, which is our community of educators um, practicing design thinking together. And um, what Adaha said, which I think is really important, is that it's very important to help educators align that practice of design thinking and relating it to the structures that already exist for them. So um, really kind of understanding how this isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, but you really need to figure out how you can best apply that within the context that you live in already and what might, might be the littlest thing that you can do. Um, there are some really cool ideas for what educators have done on the Teachers Guild website as well as teachersguild.org. Um, mm -hmm. So that can be a great place uh, to look as well. So all in all, I would say ask other educators rather than ask me <laughs> because they know sure. best <laughs> and if do not then it's sure. so that would really be my um my recommendation for educators to connect with practitioners out in the field absolutely um so you you, you stated that the design thinking toolkit for educators is not geared toward students and using it in the classroom as, as students but i mean are there um, kind of best practices you guys recommend for design thinking applied to project-based learning for students um are the ones that you find that are really effective? Um, I think there are a lot of really fun starting points for introducing design and design thinking in the classroom. And just to be clear, I think is incredibly valuable to teach design and design thinking in the classroom, right? I think that is a, it's a, a very important 
skill to equip students with for their future, right? And mm. luckily, we're seeing lots and lots of educators do that. And we're also seeing lots of schools do that, right? And build towards that. Um, I think a, a few things to kind of recommend there is one is to always remember to start small. So mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of little things that can be done to promote the mindsets and skills of design thinking, right? And kind of looking at which ones might I be promoting in my classroom and also through the subject that I'm teaching. Um, so mm -hmm. one thing to say there is I don't think that design and design thinking necessarily need to be their own subject, Right. Um, right. It, you don't have to have a class. I actually think it's quite counterproductive to have a design class because then, you know, if it's done really well, that can be super exciting, but it could also become something that you just kind of check off the list. Right. Um, right. Rather, design and design thinking really can be infused in so many other subjects in these really, really exciting ways. Right. So you can think about um, how do you maybe ask students to build empathy as they are learning about, say, history, right? Is there somebody they can interview about a moment in time and that we understand what that was like, right? Can you encourage them to build a prototype and try out a math concept in a really tangible way? Right? Does it make sense to run a brainstorm um, at one point of um, whichever subject you might be investigating at that moment, et cetera? So, um, I really think infusing design and design thinking in the day and experience that learners go through and thinking through many moments there can be um, a very valuable practice. And also it's just a lot easier to access than to think about having to teach a whole new concept. Um, one other thing I would say there, and this again goes back to why we constructed the design thinking toolkit the way we did, is that one of the most powerful ways for students to learn design thinking is by way of experiencing their educators acting like designers, right? And so mm -hmm. just um, I would just very much encourage educators to try out what it's like if they think and act like a designer in their classroom and what um, their students can then take away from that and um, how that can then really shape the experience without necessarily having to be a subject or a curriculum, just more mindset. Sure. Um, you know, kind of following up on that, I feel like STEM and STEAM, you know, with the addition of art, those are so privileged in K through 12 right now. I mean, everybody is kind of rushing to build these kind of digital classrooms or maker spaces. And just at a higher level, even like kind of above design thinking, how do you feel like design can fit into STEM and STEAM curriculum? Um, and I mean, do you feel like it's missing from that conversation? I don't necessarily think it's missing from that conversation um, because, again, I think it can live through all those other subjects, right? You can teach a science class with a design thinking mindset, right? You can construct mm -hmm. a, a technology activity that really leverages the skills of a designer, right? You can, engineering absolutely is intertwined with design, right? Actually, actually good engineering, I think, more often than not comes with a design challenge, right? And is applied as part of that. 
right? Math concepts often become so much more tangible when you think about what you can do with them and how you can apply them. And of course, art is creation and is being creative. Um, and so um, especially in understanding how difficult it is for educators to fit anything new into that already very full school day and also just how much we're already asking of our students and how much we're asking oh, yeah. them to absorb, right, every single day. Um, I just really believe that design and design mindsets can very well be taught through other subjects. And so thinking about it as this is a problem-solving capacity, right? Every single subject is about solving problems. How can we think about um, these aspects of a creative process, of creative methodology as part of those content areas, right? So can you build that prototype in your math class? Um, can you design an experiment? What is it that you can do so that you really apply and model that creative mindset um, in a way that I was describing it earlier? Sure. So you've uh, some of your work has been kind of applying human-centered design to help kind of school leadership re reimagine school spaces and the school environment. Can you give us some examples of the work you've done with, with schools to kind of further that interest? I would say that when it comes to applying design and design thinking to various challenges, um, there is a couple of things um, that I find helpful. One is the general methodology and mindset really is always the same, right? So uh, no matter whether you're solving for um, designing a new statewide educational model, whether you are solving for reimagining a makerspace in a school mm -hmm. that typically doesn't have exposure to even technology, when you think about reimagining the teacher development journey, um, whatever it is, the basic building blocks and approaches are always the same. Kind of a, you do want to start with people, really want to understand who you're designing for and what they need. Then you want to generate ideas and be expansive in that. Um, and then you want to prototype your ideas, make them tangible quickly, um, and then essentially really iterate based on the feedback that you get. So that is that process is always the same. Um, how I think um, design gets really good, right, and where you understand high quality is mm -hmm. um, when you very much um, understand the context and then um, you iterate your approach based off of that. So we believe that in order to involve communities in the design effectively, um, we often are better served in giving them the tools to design themselves and to work with mm -hmm. each other. So we recently um, were working with um, the community um, in South Bend, uh, Indiana, that is currently well-known because Pete Buttigieg used to be the mayor there. And um, the initiative mm -hmm. that we were involved in there was about um, creating um, essentially a system that connects people who do not necessarily see a future that leads to economic prosperity or growth um, and helping mm -hmm. them realize what opportunities they have to connect with each other. Um, but rather than a, a kind of group of researchers from IDEO going there, asking them questions and then going back and designing at IDEO, what we did was we found community leaders locally 
equip them with the tools to ask other people questions, to brainstorm with other people, to come up with ideas. Um, and that way really sourced a sense of what is the voice of the community there, right? And not inserting ourselves mm -hmm. in that community, but rather giving them the tools and agency to design uh, was a much more powerful process to create a solution that really reflects the wishes of the community. Um, and adding that level of sophistication and understanding the power dynamics between you as the designer and decision maker or the client, in our case, often a partner and decision maker, and the people who are going to be affected by your design can be a very powerful way of doing design well. And I would say that in the school context, there's always a, a power dynamic between the teacher and the students, right? So if you want to design something with your students, you might actually be best served to give your students the tools to design something that can give you very authentic input, right? And design processes into this where you let them make decisions and you let them vote what they like best. Right? And then you got to figure out how you realize that. <laughs> but um, actually kind of engaging people who will be affected by a design solution as designers is a very powerful way um, of essentially creating solutions that fit the people that you're trying to serve. It really sounds like student-centered learning, I mean, and, and just mm -hmm. the best possible outcome of that. Um, so you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, I think that design thinking is unfortunately paired with technology in the United States right now, and especially like uh, creating makerspaces or some kind of innovation center. But what are just kind of the basic practical tools that you would have around the classroom? Um, you know, I'm thinking of things like post-it notes, but what do you usually uh, recommend that teachers might have on hand to kind of give students a way to kind of iterate through ideas, um, you know, not teaching design as a subject, but using design thinking for other subjects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that um, ultimately, um, pretty much, th th there's two, two parts to it. Yes, post-it notes are something that is oftentimes associated with design thinking, and we do use them extensively here at IDEO still because they just have proven to be a very useful tool to share information on walls. So one other, I don't even know if you would call a wall technology, but I would suggest that walls in a classroom are a really powerful um, tool to encourage design and design thinking. So encouraging students to share information on the walls. If you don't have post-it notes, then you know just pin up papers, right? That can work too. But um, sharing information, not just in individuals' notebooks, but having it out on the wall so everybody can look at it together. That's a really um, important part of the collaborative aspect of design and enabling that in the classroom in the most simple manner by dedicating a wall to that, that can be really useful, right? Um, certainly, um, if you can provide post-it notes, can provide uh, markers to write on them, that can be um, useful just for kind of the early part of information gathering. Um, I would say another thing that can really encourage the creative process in the classroom is a bit of a space where you can make Ideally, a space where you can be a bit messy. Doesn't have to be fancy, mm -hmm. right? You can even have found objects. You can just um, kind of as assemble things that are um, usually would be discarded. It can be cardboard, it can be packaging, things like that. That is perfect to make things with. And then you just need glues and scissors, right? Um, all of that will be super familiar to educators, right? And just having a space in a classroom mm -hmm. 
um, that you dedicate to that, where you then might say, okay, does anybody want to make something? Why didn't you go back to that space and make something? That doesn't have to be a huge investment. Yes, of course, it is incredibly valuable if a school can have a maker space and if there can also be um, technological tools, if there can be kind of an integration of all that. Um, I just don't think that that necessarily makes for better creative thinking, right? Um, right. It's very much just about giving permission um, giving permission to really be creative, giving permission to um, uh, being open to coming up with an idea that might not be perfect in the first place, right? Um, all right. of that is much more important than any tools and technology, right? I've seen um, beautiful maker spaces go completely unused because no thought was put into the kind of way how teachers and students would engage with it. Right. And then it became this very much way too pristine thing that nobody really knew how to access. Right. And it was really underutilized. Um, and at the same time, then you see these really beautiful ex expressions of creativity that have nothing to do with it. I think one example that often comes to mind um, is the cardboard challenge, which um, some of the listeners might have heard about that Nirvan Malik, a filmmaker, actually kind of initiated a few years ago with a film mm -hmm. that went viral about a cardboard arcade that um, a, a young um, a young kid at that age had at that time had built in Los Angeles. And ever since, there's a yearly cardboard challenge that goes around. And, you know, all you need is cardboard, scissors, and tape. And it's incredible things that kids built with that. And I think that's really where you find such great inspiration, right? And so especially at a day and age where we need to be thinking about sustainability and where we need to be thinking about the footprint that we're creating um, everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. I think really uh, just making with what we have and creating with what we have and reminding each other of how can we create the psychological safety that's so necessary to be creative. How can we create um, the collaborative spaces? How can we just be together? That really is at um, the core of it. And I think that's what makes creativity thrive more so than any <laughs> equipment <laughs> that you might need. One thing I was going to ask you also, you know, given your perspective of, you know, being raised in Germany and coming here, I mean, a lot of design, uh, human centered design, design thinking, it sounds like the scientific method to me. And like you said, it's natural. Why do you think it's, it's, it's something that we've had such a hard time coming to in the United States from kind of the need finding you're doing around the country? You know, um, I actually think there's a healthy skepticism um, that design mm -hmm. thinking is being met with. And I had that very skepticism myself. So um, when Sandy Spiker um, first told me about that idea of creating a design thinking toolkit for educators, I was sort of like, that makes no sense. I'm a designer. I went to mm -hmm. design school. My parents are educators. So I come from a lineage of lots and lots of educators. Um, and I was like, mm -hmm. wait, that's a different profession. And so why should educators be doing design? Like, I, I just really, it made no sense. Um, and I very much thought of it through that lens of the professional, not so much through the lens of the mindset and the creating. Mm -hmm. um, what helped me see that differently was working with educators directly. Um, and seeing them apply those mindsets and skills and just kind of offering what we did as designers and being like, how does that make sense? How does that fit in your process? And then seeing them really engage with it and seeing it kind of click for them, right? And being like, oh, wow, mm -hmm. yeah, this is really cool. It totally resonates. 
I've kind of been doing this, but not really. And now I feel like I can talk about the practice that I have been engaging with in a much more um, kind of believable manner. And I can level up in a way, right? And um, I think another really important aspect of that also is continues to be for educators to find community of others who share that mindset. What's at the core of it really is uh, believing in the power of educators to be able to make change, right? I think mm. that we live in a day and age where in not only the United States, but many, many countries around the world, educators are met with suspicion. The profession is not regarded highly. Um, they are seen as a problem. They're seen as, as somebody who needs to be trained at and solved for. Um, and I think that we really need to change that conversation and we need to look at them as having potential. And so um, I think in coming back to your question about that skepticism about design thinking, I think that what's really important here is that in that journey of bringing design and design thinking to education, we needed to go through um, a kind of fair bit of investigating of how does it really make sense? What are the mechanisms that resonate most? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that the people who kind of ran for it in the first place and were like, yay, this is awesome, were necessarily the ones that created the most profound change. Some of them did, some of them really modeled it. But I think a lot of people that really investigated, how does this really fit my context? How does this fit professional learning goals? Right? How does this really create change for me as an educator, for my school community? How does this really enable me to do things that I haven't been able to do, to do before? That really, um, it created a better practice of design thinking in education. So um, I welcome the skepticism. I welcome um the slowness of the adoption. <laughs> and I think we mm -hmm. should continue to actually be scrutinous. Uh, so while on the one hand, I wrote that toolkit <laughs> that said, yes, design thinking is awesome and do it as educators. I would also always say and do it well and practice, you know, and just keep setting higher standards because we owe that to students, right? We really owe that to um, parent communities. We owe that to all those that are um and involved in what school means and schools can be such inspiring and incredibly important places to shape our future generations and so I think we should treat any methodology that we let get in there with <laughs> a level of skepticism and scrutiny and so um, I would say let's let's continue to apply that to design thinking. I do believe that design and design thinking can make very profound change in education. I have seen that firsthand. There are so many examples of it and so many people have taken it on and have run with it in the sector. It is so exciting, right? This is not a thing that we neither invented it nor are we the only ones who brought it to education. I also want to just make sure that we recognize that there are a lot of amazing people and organizations that bring design thinking um, to education today, and that is that's just really exciting. But the whole reason for that being so important is because we need to see change in schools, right? We we cannot be satisfied with what we have today. So wherever design and design thinking can help us make that change, we should absolutely use and apply it. And where it's not the right methodology, or we're not in the right moment to apply it. We should also recognize that and, and look for other methodologies or ways to address the problems that we have. 
Um, but I, I do have hope for um, a lot more well-needed change in schools that will occur because educators, district leaders, school leaders, politicians, parent communities, and students really embrace that mindset and approach. Sure. And it's not as if, I mean, our school systems are just, you know, succeeding beyond our greatest dreams. I mean, a lot of systems are collapsing or need improvement or are failing to, you know, educate kids in a way that we would, we would hope to. So it's, you know, I think we can use every little bit of help we can get and new ways to think and new frameworks. So kind of as my last follow-up question, I, I just was at, was going to ask you um, what books or podcasts or movies or poems or websites or articles have inspired you lately. Um, doesn't have to be each one of those, but uh, just if anything's really standing out to you that you can recommend to listeners. Hmm. Well, um, I'm obsessed with The Daily. <laughs> I think that has just really brought a whole new level to understanding news, and I love The Daily um, that has kids at their center. There have been a few that are just really delightful, so I highly recommend those. Um, I'm currently reading a book that's called How to Be an Anti-Racist uh, by um, Ibram X. Kendi, Kendi, I think. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, it's really fascinating and important um, because it, it talks about um, how to practice an anti-racist mindset and how there is no such thing as being race neutral. Um, and for me, especially as um, someone coming from Germany, Germany has, of course, a very complex history of immigration and migration, especially in this moment. Uh, but it is not the same history that exists here in the U.S. And the inequities that shape the school system and are perpetuated in it and through it uh, really require for me and I think uh, many other people around me that work in education um, and work in that field to understand what it means um, to understand what what racism is and how it still exists. So I uh, very much recommend that book and benefit from it. Um, I also just recently completed um, The Whole Brainchild by Daniel Siegel and Tina Bryson. Mm -hmm. um, I just found it. I, I love science-related things and understanding how the brain works. And um, while that book is about kids um especially it also just really resonates in how we interact with each other as adults <laughs> with what they call the mm -hmm. upstairs and downstairs brain and so that's really fun um and i think i might have to watch cheer um on netflix i've heard that, <laughs> that oh really it's cool. fantastic <laughs> and i've been getting yeah. some little clips of that so um that might be that might be next <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's not only extremely well-made and beautifully shot and, you know, edited, but also just seeing, seeing, I think anytime you get to see humans, you know, dedicating themselves so much to something and putting so many hours of the day into this kind of excellence and whatever they're doing, it's just really inspiring. And um, it's also only six episodes, which is really nice. <laughs> awesome. Yes, I'm definitely going to put that on the list. <laughs> Well, Annette, I just want to say thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us, and I really enjoyed this conversation. You are super welcome. Really fun speaking with you, and thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. I'd like to send a special thank you to Annette Diefenthaler and IDEO. If you like this or other episodes, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have show ideas or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at depthandlight.com.